Uh, I'll invite you to bow your heads while I pray. Father in heaven, Father, we do thank you again for your holy Sabbath day. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your long suffering and mercy toward us. Uh, I pray, Lord, for more of the spirit of Christ, a spirit of investigation, a spirit of meekness and humility, the spirit of a learner, that we would each be uh, kind to one another, even in our disagreements, and that underneath it all, we would have a sincere desire to know what is truth so that we can practice what is true. Now, Father, you promised the spirit of truth to guide us into all truth. And so I ask for the Holy Spirit this evening. You've promised that when we ask for the spirit, you're more willing to give the spirit to us than we are to give good gifts to our children. So I claim that promise and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, our message this evening, again, is the harvest of life. And I want to pick up with the third angel's message. And I'm not going to go to Revelation uh, 14 right at the mo moment, uh, but we talked about a little bit this, of this earlier, and I'm going to get back into it. Uh, the essence of the third angel's message, the essence of it, uh, the warning against the mark of the beast and what have you, the essence of it is righteousness by faith. And I like to put it this way, and I'm going to share an Ellen White statement you're probably familiar with in a moment. The, the, the third angel's message is a warning against receiving the mark of the beast. But a warning is not the solution. In other words, if I tell you a, a storm is coming, that isn't the solution to being prepared for the storm. It, the warning helps you, but you might have to drive out of town might be the preparation for preparing for the storm. And the storm that's coming with the mark of the beast, there's only one way out. And that, only, that way is the righteousness of Christ. That's why the righteousness of, of Christ, righteousness by faith, is the essence of the third angel's message. It is the solution to the problem. Ellen White said in the Review and Herald of April 1, 1890, several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Now, the interesting thing about the context of this is, this was during the, the, the aftermath of the 1888 message. And just a quick caveat here. Uh, there are people who say that the 1888 message came and went in 1888, that and there was no transcript of the meeting like we had af for after meetings. And, and because of that, we really don't know totally what the 1888 message was. And then after that, Wagner and Jones went off the rails. And so everything they said afterwards was erroneous. You will not find that supported in the writings of Ellen White, who repeatedly endorsed the message of, of Jones and Wagner into the 1900s. Uh, and even when Jones apostatized, she encouraged him to go back and read his own sermons that he presented at the 1893 and 1897 General Conference sessions that would get him back on track. And uh, she said those messages were of the Holy Spirit's framing. It was in the context of that, as they were preaching this righteousness by faith or justification by faith message, that people were writing to Ellen White and saying, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is, we're we should be talking about the last days. We should be talking about present truth. And uh, so they wrote to her and, and asked her, is this the third angel's message? It was almost a snarky way of saying, these guys are preaching the wrong stuff. And she responded by saying, yes, it is the third angel's message in verity. It is the truth of the third, it is the essence of the third angel's message. Now she says, the message of justification by faith. Ellen White often used the term justification by faith rather than righteousness by faith, although she used both. Both justification and righteousness come from the same root word in the Greek. So just so that you know that. And to clarify that a little bit further, there's a, a fascinating statement in the book, Faith and Works. Now, I want to pause here and say that if there is any book that Seventh-day Adventists read, need to read in these days, it's the book, Faith and Works. It is a, a phenomenal book, and it's one of those books that I'd go over my shelf and get it, but it's a, it's a thin book. It's not one of these overwhelming, like, read this book. Well, you, you should read this book, but, you know, some big, thick book. It's, it's a, a concise and beautiful book on uh, righteousness by faith, the balance of faith and works, and what have you. In that book, she says this, page 14, many commit the error of trying to define minutely the fine points of distinction between justification and sanctification. Now listen, into the definitions of these two terms, they often bring their own ideas and speculations. So she's warning against people trying to be too particular, like justification is this and sanctification is this, even though she talks about them in different ways. She, she cautions because she says that 
people tend to bring their own, they say, oh, justification is this, and then they bring into their own ideas and they confuse people. And she continues to ask, why try to be more minute than is inspiration on the vital question of righteousness by faith? Um, an interesting aside from that is that I did this series I mentioned on the book Steps to Christ. And when I did it, it was the first time, this was um, 2018. And it was the first time I realized as I did a word search that the word justification does not appear anywhere in the book Steps to Christ. The word sanctification does not appear anywhere in the book Steps to Christ. I was surprised by that. The word justify appears once, I think. And so, and I think it's because Ellen White did not want to get targeted or, or tagged out for using one of these terms that somebody read differently. So she just explained what she meant without using those, those words. Anyway, kind of an interesting point to me. So the third angel's message, the essence of it is righteousness, righteousness by faith, okay? The message of righteousness by faith is inseparably connected with Christ's closing work in the heavenly sanctuary, okay? The third angel's message is in verity, justification by faith. And back to a statement we looked at earlier from early writings, page 254, Ellen White says, the third, angel's, uh, the third angel closes his message thus, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. As he repeated these words, he pointed to the heavenly sanctuary. So the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus, the righteousness by faith, justification by faith, message of the third angel is connected with the work of the heavenly sanctuary where the angel was pointed, okay? And we're gonna flesh that out in just a bit. So when we're talking about the work of the heavenly sanctuary, you, you can't be talking about righteousness by faith and not be connected to the, the, the work that Christ is doing right now for his people, okay? And again, I'll elaborate on that a little further. Now, when we talk about righteousness, righteousness is the essence of God's character. Righteousness is not just a thing or things we do. The essence of righteousness is character. When we're talking about the righteousness of Christ, we're talking about character, not deeds. Not that there's not an association or connection with that. Um, again, righteousness is the essence of God's character, goodness. You could say the same thing. I think of the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus, Mark chapter 10, verse 18, he says, good teacher. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that is God. Um, that's because only God is righteous. Man isn't righteous. We don't have righteousness of our own. The only righteousness we'll ever have is given us by God through Jesus Christ. Listen to this fascinating statement in the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 18. It says, righteousness is holiness, likeness to God, and God is love, 1 John 4, 16. It is conformity to the law of God. So righteousness is holiness, Righteousness is likeness to God, right? and God is love, so it's being loving like God is. Uh, righteousness is conformity to the law of God, for all thy commandments are righteousness, Psalm 119, 172. And love is the fulfilling of the law. So you see Ellen White is tying these things together. Righteousness is conformity to the law, but it's also loving like God loved. You can't separate those things. And then she goes on to say, righteousness is love, and love is the light and the life of God. The righteous, now don't miss this last part. This is fascinating to me. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving him. Now listen, justification does not come to a person who doesn't have the righteousness of God. To be justified means you receive the righteousness of God, but you don't receive the righteousness of God until you receive Christ. And I had a minister ask me recently, you know, the whole idea of the heavenly sanctuary was confusing because he said, how is God going over records of sin? How, is there, how are there records of sin in the sanctuary when the Bible says God casts our sin in the depths of the sea? And, you know, you've got different passages that are dealing with different things, but I, want, I, I explained it to him this way. We, God doesn't get rid of our sins. God gets rid of, our, how do I word this? We're crucified with Christ. That's what happens to our sins. We die. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. That's where my sins went. And now Christ lives in me. 
But if at any time I decide to choose to go my own way and choose not to follow Christ, guess what? I trade my new life with Christ for my old life that was done away with. It's only that it's only in Christ that we have righteousness, and it's only while we have Christ that we have righteousness. He who has the Son, John says, has life. And so I thought that was a fascinating statement. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving him. And in essence, we receive his righteous character. Okay, You'll see where we're going with this. Just follow along. Now, it's interesting that the New Testament word for righteousness is the Greek word dikaiosune. And this, is, this word is defined in the Strong's lexicon as integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, which you would, is the root word of righteousness. It's, it's rightness according to God's idea, not my idea. And, and, and it continues by saying this, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Righteousness is, is correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. So it's not just outward, it's deeply inward. But I want you to take that concept for a minute. You know, the biblical word for righteousness is correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Now consider this statement in connection with that from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 310. If the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong, and the thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character. Again, if righteousness is correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting, thoughts and feelings, we're talking about righteousness as character, okay? Now, why am I making this point? Why am I going to this length to tie in this, you know, the work in the heavenly sanctuary and righteousness by faith with character? Because the, the, the destiny, the, the um, message this evening is called the harvest of life. In the book, Education, page 108, and I'm skipping a little down in the notes here, Ellen White says, the harvest of life is character and it is this that determines destiny, both for this life and for the life to come. The whole statement is a fascinating statement, but I just took that little piece out to, to make that point clear. The harvest of life is character. Character determines eternal destiny. It's not the occasional good deed or misdeed, as Elmite says elsewhere. Character is what determines destiny. What, where we're going to end up is determined by character. And so the work of Jesus in the sanctuary above is a, is a work of... Uh, refining our characters, perfecting our characters, if you will. Now, let's look at a couple passages on this. I want you to go to the book of Revelation with me, and I've covered all these things before in different ways, and so perhaps you've heard it before, but what was it we read by Elder James White this morning, that the points of present truth need to be repeated even to those who are well established in them? And the people said, amen. <laughs> so we're going to go to Revelation 13, this last conflict that we're heading into. Uh, even as we, we speak here. Um, Revelation 13, we're going to look at verse 16. We're going to be, uh, begin there. The Bible says that he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has, now notice this carefully, one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, the chapter breaks weren't there in the original. We keep reading. So notice what John's about to do. John talks about these people who have the mark of the beast in their forehead. Now he contrasts in, in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And some translations say having his name and his father's name. Now, here's the point that I want you to understand. At the end of time, you have two opposing groups, and they're identified by the marks that they have. Both of them have marks in the forehead, and both of those marks contain names. And that's very significant from a biblical perspective, because in the Bible, names were often synonymous with character or characteristics. For example, uh, when we read the story of Jacob, we learned that Jacob was a name that meant the deceiver or the usurper. It was, it was a characteristic of Jacob that was assigned to him, which is why when Jacob wrestled with the angel, he was given a new name. 
And that new name meant something entirely different. It meant a prince with God or an overcomer with God. And so names in the Bible often refer to character. I, I like to you know, bring up the story of Isaac. Uh, the name Isaac, if you do some study on this, or maybe you have, means laughter. And it was because when both Abraham and Sarah heard that Sarah was going to have a child in her old age when she'd never had a child before, she laughed at God. <laughs> they both laughed at it. And so the name of the child was laughter. Names are linked to something like that. And when you come to the book of Revelation and you see this final contest, you know, time doesn't permit us. We can go into the tie-in with the Sabbath and everything else, but I want to make this clear. Knowing which day the Sabbath is, is not going to avoid the mark of the beast for you. What character you have developed is going to determine where your final outcome is. And this is why this is, is, is alarming to me, because there are many Seventh-day Adventists that are not taking advantage of the opportunity right now while Jesus ministers in their behalf in the sanctuary in heaven to develop characters that will fit them to stand when he comes. They think a knowledge of a few facts, that the Sabbath is on the seventh day and the dead are dead and hell doesn't burn forever is going to get them ready, and it's not. And so this is what we should be reading when we're reading about, you know, this, this final conflict and the names in the forehead, that it's a character issue that's going to determine the outcome. Um, we talked about names and character. God's name is synonymous with his glory and character, uh, as his law is also. And you've heard that the law is a transcript of God's character. You may say, well, where do we get that from scripture? Uh, we go to the book of Exodus. And if you go to Exodus 33, and again, you may be familiar with this. This is probably, I'm sure this is not the first time I've covered this at Advent Hope. But in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses makes a request of God. He says to God, please show me your glory. Now notice how God responds. Verse 19, then he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Wait a minute. What did Moses ask to see? His, his goodness? No, he asked to see his glory. Well, God's showing him his glory, but glory is synonymous with goodness or character. Now notice what else he says. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. So both goodness and name are synonymous with glory, and they all have reference to character. God's glory is his character, is his name. Now, not every time you read glory in the, in the Bible does it refer to God's character, but often it does. When you come to Revelation 14 and you have the three angels' messages and the first angel says, fear God and give glory to him, he's talking about reflecting his character. That's what he's talking about. You're going to see that as we go on. So God's name is synonymous with his glory and character. And of course, a few verses later, God, when he, God proclaimed his name, what he ended up doing, in fact, let's, I don't want to skip over that. So God told Moses he's going to show him, uh, declare his name, his, his goodness, uh, and his name. And he tells him in chapter 34, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets, etc. And uh, so Moses cut the uh, tablets of stone, came into God's presence. It says in verse 5, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. What's he proclaiming? His character. But the Bible says he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And what does Moses walk away with? The Ten Commandments. So all of this is tied in. The Ten Commandments are just a transcript of the character of God. We see this from this, at least this passage. And so this is why you can read in the book, Christ Object Lessons, page 414, paragraph two, Ellen White says, the light of his glory, dash, his character, dash, is to shine forth in his followers. So there she equates the glory of God with the character of God. Again, the final test is a test of character. The, 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 the glory of God that's called for in the first angel's message is the character of God. The character is going to determine the final outcome. Again, from Education 108, the harvest of life is character, and it is this that determines destiny, both for this life and for the life to come. And it is the work of Christ in the sanctuary that is right now fitting our characters for heaven. That's what he's doing there. Uh, so 
for for many Adventists, we, we talk about the investigative judgment, and and even as you read some of uh, uh, Facing Life's record and great controversy and stuff, well, names are being brought up and checked off and what have you, and a lot of times people walk away with this very what do I want to get a, a very almost an imper, a very impersonal um, austere I, I I don't know what word I'm, 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 the words escaping me but just this very uh, cold and calculated, that's what the judgment is. But the judgment is about Christ trying to work with his people in harmony with them to fit their characters for heaven. Um, we read this earlier in uh, the message this morning. Great Controversy 488.9 says the sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. What work? It's the work we talked about this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, where he's putting away the sin of his people. Well, what What's that talking about? It's talking about developing character. Um, it concerns every living soul, every soul living upon the earth. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. So there it says the work of Christ is, is bringing us right down to this final conflict with the mark of the beast and the seal of God, this um, final test of character. That's the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Um, and when he finishes that work, he will come. This is where that statement in Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, comes in, where Ellen White says, and I'm quoting a piece of it, this is a fantastic statement, and I am i can't tell you how tempted I was with a lot of these to just, let's just read the chapter, but I'm just picking a piece to, to make, to clarify where it is we're heading, which we're still kind of heading there. Um, but when we finish, it's going to be good. <laughs> Christ Object Lessons, page 69, says, when the fruit, now Ellen White quotes from the Gospel of Mark, when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he put it in the sickle because the harvest is come. And I like the wording of that in light of what we just looked at from the book Education, the harvest of life is character. The harvest has come, and so he puts in the sickle. Now, notice how she comments. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. I, I don't know how people don't get this. I can't manifest Christ in me. The manifestation of himself is the revelation of himself in his church. So when we talk about Christ's character in us, that's not something I'm doing because I'm counting how many almonds are on my plate at lunch or something like that. That is not that I don't have a part to play, which we're going to see in a minute, but it's the work of Christ. He's waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced, and I would add by Christ in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. All that statement's telling us Commenting on the Gospel of Mark is that the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary is a work of fitting our characters for heaven, and when that is finished, he will come. His work in the sanctuary will be done. He'll lay aside the priestly garments and put on the kingly robes, as we see in other places in Scripture. Now, this is why I feel this is important. I want to get into this a little bit. You know, we're talking about this. Maybe this isn't new to you, but here's why this is so, to me, why this is so crucial. Um, it's about how character is formed. Character is not formed. As I said in this morning's message, this is not a one-way street. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to let go and let God. I'm going to sit back and Jesus is going to do it all. And I'm just going to sit here and do whatever. Uh, he's going to have to do it because I can't do anything. Well, it's true. We don't have any strength of ourselves. That's why the Lord empowers us by his grace. Uh, he says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that God gives us grace that we may serve him acceptably. But character is not formed in a moment. And character is not formed without our effort. Uh, we must respond to Christ's promptings through the Holy Spirit. And so character, the formation of character, is the result of a daily walk with Christ. This is what the whole parable of the ten virgins is about. You have these ten virgins. They're virgins. They have a pure faith. They're following Jesus. They're waiting for the bridegroom. But, and they all sleep, the wise and the foolish. Ellen White says these virgins are not hypocrites, they're sincere, but one group has enough oil to make it and the other group doesn't. And that oil, that extra oil has to do with character. 
Some of them have developed a character for the crisis. I always wondered when I read that parable, it kind of bugged me that the, the wise virgins were so snobby because the foolish virgins, they all wake up and they're like, hey, can you give us some of your oil? No, we're not giving you any more oil. There wouldn't be enough for us. I'm thinking selfish. That's not Christ-like. But the point being conveyed in the parable is that that oil represents character and you can't give character to somebody. I can't form character for you and you can't form it for me. Character is formed by our own choices and our own relation to Christ. And the parable is telling us that these foolish virgins put off the formation of character. Now, what's interesting about this is it's in the context of this wedding. And there's another wedding parable we're gonna look at in just a minute that I think really brings the point home. Listen to this statement in the book, Christ Object Lessons. This is another one, this whole page. Go read, just read the page of Christ Object Lessons 331. Fantastic, convicting and inspiring at the same time. It says, uh, Christ Object Lessons 331, paragraph one, Christ has given us no assurance that to attain perfection of character is an easy matter. Okay, we shouldn't get the idea. We got no biblical reason to have the idea that it's easy. Jesus said, if you're going to follow him, you've got to deny self. I've got people who say, hey, when you accept Jesus, then you'll naturally want to do good. That is not biblical. If that were true, how could Jesus say in the Gospel of Luke that if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily? It's a daily thing. Where's the denial if it's my natural desire? If it's my natural desire to follow Jesus, there's no self-denial needed anymore. But Jesus, this is what she's saying. Christ has given no assurance that to attain perfection of character is an easy matter. A noble all-round character is not inherited. It does not come to us by accident. A noble character is earned. Now, you, uh, the, the, listen to how it's stated here. Is earned by individual effort through the merits and grace of Christ. Okay? So I'm not meriting anything. If she says it's earned by individual effort, all she's saying is we have to make individual effort, but where do I find the strength to make the effort? The Bible says we have no natural strength. We get it from Christ, so we can't claim any credit for this, but we do have to act on it because Christ is not going to force us. I hear this all the time. Well, God is too much of a gentleman to force us, and yet for some in some way, we've, we, we're waiting for God to force us to be holy. It's like, well, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to sin anymore. Well, how's that going to happen? If it can't happen here, how's it going to happen there? Well, he's just going to make it happen. And I guess people think that if I that my biggest problem is my sinful nature, and if that was taken away, I wouldn't sin anymore. But that's not true, because my character would still determine what I'm going to do. And God has to do Listen, in eternity, God's not forcing us there either. And so if I could be induced to sin here, because we sin by a choice, we're told that Satan himself can't force us to sin then what's going to keep me from choosing there? I'll tell you what's going to keep me, a character like Christ's that is totally, sub totally submitted to God. And so Ellen White says, a noble character is earned by individual effort through the merits and grace of Christ. God gives the talents, the powers of the mind, right? They're not mine. I find, the strength comes from him, but I have to choose to use it. God gives the talents, the powers of mind. We form the character. It is formed by hard, stern battles with self. And many of you know just what that's talking about. I fight those battles, my friends. I am not free from those battles. And I wish I could say my character was just like Christ. But I'm going to tell you this. I don't get discouraged about it. Well, I do get discouraged about it sometimes because I want to be like him. But my, my trust is in Jesus. I keep my eyes fixed on him. And I trust that he's going to do what he said. But I've got to cooperate with him. I can't just go my own way. It's formed by hard, stern battles with self. Conflict after conflict must be waged. Simple point here being that character is not formed in a moment, and it's not formed without our own effort. God's not going to force you to form character. We've got to make choices. This is why people say, I don't like the writings of Ellen White because they're full of all these things we have to do. Have you ever read the epistles? I mean, the whole New Testament is instruction to the church on what they should do and what they should stop doing. Um, because it's following that instruction looking to Christ for help that develops that character. We're going to see that more in a moment. Go with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, and uh, starting in verse 1. Oh, I love this passage. The apostle tells us here, and notice the context, 
Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith. So we already have been justified, given our lives to Christ. And now what begins to happen? Having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And notice this last part, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, Paul says later in Romans that a man only hopes for what he doesn't have right? You don't hope for what you do have. You already have it. So you're looking forward to something. We're hoping for something. Notice what he says we hope for. We hope, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? We looked at it. It's the character of God. God's people rejoice in the hope that one day they will be like him. Not like him like we will be little gods, but we will have a character like Christ. We rejoice in that hope. Now notice how that that hope comes to us. Uh, he says, and not only that, verse three, but we also glory in tribulations, hardships, right? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. So it's as we face the tribulations and we, by the grace of God, persevere through those and those experiences develop character and character leads us to hope that god will continue to further that character to be like christ's verse five hope does not disappoint because the love of god has been poured out in our hearts by the holy spirit who has given to us and like paul says in philippians 1 6 he has started a good work by the holy spirit will finish that work we rejoice Hope doesn't disappoint because we already have, as the apostle says in the book of Ephesians, the earnest, the prepayment, the down payment of that character. We already have evidences in our lives of the working of God, and he's not going to stop. He's not going to leave us. Jesus is not going to leave us abandoned if we continue to look unto him. So it's interesting. The apostle talks about this process of the development of character in Romans 5. And a couple other passages, you know, he talks about how it comes through pay, uh, tribulation it's interesting in Romans 8 and verse 18, Paul says something similar. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time. Now, let's not talk sufferings as just, oh, people were being mean to Paul. People were, and they were being mean to Paul, more so than to us. But sufferings also include the sufferings and the strivings we go through. Um, what I mean by that is, in reading through some of these things and talking about character perfection. A recurring theme is people saying, yeah, I remember when I used to try to be perfect. And I, I still don't know what that entirely means. Um, like, so you tried not to cheat on your wife and, and you used to, and so now you don't try anymore. I mean, do you, you know, and, and, and what's really further fascinating is, and I, I've had people dialogue on this and they're like, yeah, man, that just makes for a legalistic, you're always miserable and everything else. Yet the very same people, now I'm going to tell you, I have my 54th birthday just this past week. I work out at least three days a week and I do squats and I do deadlifts and I know I'm not a big bulky guy, never was, never will be for whatever reasons, but it's hard work, especially for a 54 year old. And yet I do it and I persevere and I'm not always downcast by it. And I know other people who do with their exercise, like I don't feel like running, but I'm going to go do it. I'm going to be, and we can persevere and knock ourselves out and apply ourselves and try hard and, and, and keep going forward in just about any area in our life, looking for that promotion, looking for that, you know, uh, getting that degree. But then we come to our Christian lives and say, oh no, I mean, we can't really strive at that or that would be legalistic. What in the world is that? Legalism is motive. Legalism is not what you're doing. Legalism is thinking you're earning something by doing it. And yes, if you think you have to be getting a 10 out of 10 on the scales before God loves you and accepts you, then yeah, that's miserable. But the gospel tells us that the whole reason we come to Christ is because we couldn't do it and he accepted us. And so now we got to be able to look to him to finish what he started. So Paul says, the sufferings, um, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
And he goes on to say the whole creation is looking forward to that time when the glory of God is revealed in humanity, much like Jesus waiting for the time when his character, that's what it's talking about, it's the character of God revealed in humanity. Um, although we had more time for that. First Corinthians, as uh, it first, second Corinthians chapter four, verse 17, he says something again, very similar. Second Corinthians four, 17, the apostle says, for our light affliction, light affliction, he calls it, whatever struggles we have on this earth compared to, well, you'll see what he says, that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, we got to look with eyes of faith. So all of this, we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. We're looking forward to the glory of God. And, and, and yes, we strive and we endure hardships because that's part of the development of character. But we know that God is in control and that the power of Christ is working in our behalf. Ministry of healing. Listen to this one. This is an incredible statement. Uh, again, on, on how character is formed. Ministry of Healing, page 487. Paragraph two says, day by day and year by year, we shall conquer self. Doesn't happen in a moment, does it? Day by day and year by year, right? The, the sanctification is the work of a what? Of a lifetime. Day by day and year by year, we shall conquer self and grow into a noble heroism. This is our allotted task, but it cannot be accomplished without help from Jesus, resolute decision, unwavering purpose, continual watchfulness, and unceasing prayer. Each one has a personal battle to fight. Now listen to this last part. Not even God can make our characters noble or our lives useful unless we become co-workers with him. Simply stated, he's not going to force us. And she, this statement, I love this statement, those who decline the struggle lose the strength and joy of victory. And I've said, you don't win the game from sitting on the bench. Yeah, you get on the field and it's hard and you might get some bumps and bruises, but you're never gonna taste victory otherwise. And so people say, yeah, but when I have to strive in the Christian life, it can be overwhelming. Well, quit looking at yourself and look to Jesus and know that you by his grace will soon know the strength and joy of victory. And it doesn't, it isn't in the by and by, it isn't, we can gain victories every day. And I know that many of you that are viewing have. Take those to heart. Don't say, well, I gained this victory, but how is he going to give me this victory? Because that's what we do. We, we, for some reason, we understand that he was able to give us victory in one place, but there's another place we just, like, that's too hard for Jesus. Nothing's too hard for Jesus. Amen? So those who decline the struggle lose the strength and joy of victory. Now, I want to turn our attention as we close to the parable of the wedding garment. And this is in Matthew 22. And I think this point will be clear when we look at this Matthew 22, starting in the first verse. And actually, I'm not going to, for, for sake of time, go through uh, the whole parable because he talks about an invitation. Well, let's just start it. Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And so you have this, and it's a whole parable of the Jewish nation, this first part. And they rejected, and the invitation was given to the Gentiles. That's what this is about. But the idea is that the kingdom of heaven is like. The certain king is God the Father. The son is Jesus Christ. And God invited them to the marriage. This is a fascinating study when you understand the symbolism of marriage and how it connects with Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary. It's, I need to do a message on that sometime. It's fast. I've done them before, but I can't refer you to what the titles are, what have you. But it goes on to say that, you know, the first group didn't accept the invitation. Now, let's just be clear here that God the Father is sending out an invitation to the marriage of his son. What is that? What is that invitation? What is it an invitation to? I think we would agree that it's an invitation to salvation, that, that God is offering salvation through his son to be united with his son, that marriage. with the And the first group rejected, which was the Jewish nation. So he sent out another round of invitations and guests came in and the wedding hall, the Bible says the banquet hall, in fact, uh, verse uh, 10. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this, there's a man sitting in the, bank, in the, in the, in the banquet hall or sitting there in the wedding hall. The, the king sees him and he goes up to him. Now you have to understand that the invitation is the invitation to salvation. So if we draw the, connect the dots here, this is a person who, he showed up. So he accepted, at least in his own mind, he accepted the invitation to salvation. So he's sitting there in the wedding hall, feeling like he has every right to be there because he accepted the invitation, okay? However, when the king comes, he sees that he doesn't have a wedding garment. Now, apparently a garment was sent to him and the man was supposed to put it on. Also evidently, and if you look at this a little further in the scripture and, and in the writings of Ellen White, this man knew full well about the wedding garment, which is why he's speechless. When the king asks him, hey, why don't you have the wedding garment on? He didn't say, what are you talking about wedding garment? I don't even know what you're talking about. He was speechless because he knew about the wedding garment but for whatever reason, he felt it wasn't important for him to wear it. Now, I'm going to make an application here, and you can take it how, how you'd like, but I think it's pretty spot on. This is a person who has accepted the invitation to salvation, and they learned that it was important to have on the wedding garment, the robe of Christ's righteousness, the character of Christ, but for some reason, perhaps they talked to their friends in the church, their minister in the church, their favorite theologian, whatever, and they said, oh, that's no big deal. As long as you've accepted the invitation, that's what counts. And so here this man is, and he feels like he has every right to be there. He's perfectly satisfied to be there. And when that king comes and asks about the wedding garment, he realizes that he made a big mistake, but it's too late to change it. This is, this is, this is, this is what I'm getting at. There are far too many Adventists who have bought the idea that it's not important how we live. What matters is your relationship with Jesus. That's what we say today. Well, that's true. But there are different kinds of relationships with Jesus. The devil has a relationship with Jesus, and it's a bad one. You need to have a saving relationship with Jesus. And that only comes with cooperating with what Jesus is doing in the, in the sanctuary above in fitting our characters for heaven. But there are people who are putting that on, it doesn't matter how you live, it really doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you drink, it doesn't matter, we're sinners anyway. And what's happening is they're putting off the preparation, they're not putting on the robe of righteousness, they're not developing the character, they're cut, <clears throat> pardon me, they're gonna come into that banquet hall, that wedding feast, thinking they have every right to be there, thinking God's gonna come up and say, boy, glad you came. And the king's gonna come up and say, where's the wedding garment, and it will be too late and they will be cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I used to wrestle with that. Weeping and that, what does that expression mean? I think I learned it in my first district in ministry. I had bought a, a new certified Honda. And if you know anything about the certified cars, that means they extend the warranty. Uh, and, and that warranty is extended to 70,000, uh, I'm sorry, seven years or 100,000 miles for major mechanical components. Well, my car was at about 98,000 miles, and I started getting this clunk when I went out of my driveway, out of the rear of the car, and I thought, man, I need to take it in. Well, this went on for probably a month and a half, and I'm at 99,800. <laughs> like, I've got 200 miles left, so um, I need to get the car in, and I remember taking my car in, and they checked it out, and it was a, a, a suspension part. They said it's going to be $250, and I said, well, great. It should be you know, I've, I've got the warranty on it. And they said, oh yeah, it should be covered. Let me look that up. They get on the computer, look it up. And then they said, oh, you know, your warranty expired two weeks ago. And I want to tell you there was weeping and gnashing of teeth that day. And I, I think I learned what that statement meant. You see, I could have taken the car in. Keep in mind, it was seven years or 100,000 miles. I was just focusing on the 100,000. I thought I had time, but my time was up. And had I taken it in the first time I noticed it, 
it would have been okay. But the something, it would have been different if I couldn't have done anything different, if I couldn't have changed the, the situation, but I could have, and I didn't. And to me, the weeping and gnashing of teeth comes when people realize that they had every opportunity to develop characters for heaven by cooperating with Christ, but they put it off until it was too late. And friends, I, I, don't, I don't know, in part, I don't care where your theology, the nuances of your theology are. If you're actively pursuing a Christ-like character for heaven, cooperating with him, with his work in the heavenly sanctuary, Ellen White comments on this robe of righteousness. And she says in Christ's Object Lessons 3.11, Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. He said of himself, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart, Psalm 40, verse 8. When on earth, he said to his disciples, I have kept my father's commandments, John 15, 10. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. Listen, we live his life. We don't become perfect because of us. We become perfect when Christ dwells in us. We live his life. Listen, this is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. I want to tell you, there's a lot of folks today who say, oh, the garments of righteousness, that just covers up your sin. No, it's not from the outside. It's from the inside. It's a development of a Christ-like, it's receiving the character of Christ, the life of Christ, the essence of Christ. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. And my friends, this is the very work that Christ is accomplishing for us in the sanctuary, even as we sit here right now. He intercedes for you and me to guarantee us a place in heaven, but we have to be willing to cooperate with him. Ellen White says that there are many who aren't going to be saved, not because they couldn't be saved, but because they refuse to be saved in Christ's appointed way. And I'm afraid that's uh, the case for too many right now. Now, my encouragement is this, uh, some people say, man, if I have to fight the daily fight of faith and everything else, it can be discouraging. It's true. It's true. That's why Ellen White says in the book Steps to Christ that there are many times we'll have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of shortcomings and mistakes, but we're not cast off and forsaken by God. We need to turn our eyes heavenward. Uh, this is why Paul, when he talks about the, the, the perfection of character and uh, Hebrews 10, where we're looking this morning, in Hebrews 11, he gives us that that history of all the men and women who struggled just like us, but who have overcome in the name of Jesus the, the, in the hall of faith there. And then he begins Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, by telling us that we should be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Listen, my friends, he started a work in you. Cooperate with him. He will bring it to fruition. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. In early writings 254, Ellen White tells us, I saw the third angel pointing upward, showing the disappointed ones the way to the holiest of the heavenly sanctuary. Listen carefully. As they by faith enter, just like we're to do, by faith we can enter in because we know what Jesus is doing there. He's doing it for us. As they by faith enter the most holy, they find Jesus and hope and joy spring up anew. Oh, may we find Jesus in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, and may that, in fact, let me look at this next statement as we conclude. Um, again, in early writings 256, just a couple pages later, she talks about the third angel. She says, the third angel was pointing them to the most holy place. And those who had had an experience in the past messages were pointing them. She's talking about people that were discouraged and confused. The third angel's pointing them to the most holy place. And those who had an experience in the past messages were pointing them the way to the heavenly sanctuary. My friends, salvation is not just for you and me. There are others out there who need to know the work Jesus is doing for them. They were pointed to the way to the heavenly sanctuary. It says, many saw the perfect chain of truth in the angels' messages and gladly received them in their order and followed Jesus by faith into the heavenly sanctuary. Listen to this next sentence. These messages were represented to me as an anchor 
to the people of God. Now that caught my attention when I read it this time because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews 6.19 when he refers about Christ's work in the most holy place that it is an anchor to the soul, sure and steadfast. These messages that point us to what Jesus is doing is our anchor. There are a lot of people looking for assurance in these last days and how they feel and, they, and human experience is fickle and up and down. But Jesus is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, may we have the confidence, may the Lord give us the confidence to know that what the Lord has started for us, he will certainly bring to fruition. Well, I hope that this has, in the words of the Apostle Peter, stirred up your pure minds by way of remembrance, <laughs> given you a, a, a desire to study maybe a little more deeply, and inspired you my friends, there is no other, you understand there's no other church that, that has the message we have of a present work, of a present Jesus in a present sanctuary ministering right now for us to guarantee us a place in God's kingdom. What a glorious message. And we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Well, again, I want to thank you for um, joining us this weekend. And uh, I want to finish by praying that God bless us all as we continue to study and seek to know Jesus better and to trust him more fully until we have completely yielded our lives into his hands um, and his character shines forth through us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, oh Father, I, I do thank you so much for this wonderful anchor to our soul, the work that Jesus is doing for us even at this moment. But Lord, it's not a work just for those of us who know it. Jesus is working in behalf of all humanity, and there are multitudes who need to know that there's a Savior that stands at the right hand of God and, and intercedes for them, and that salvation is, is uh, openly, full and free to them if only they hold of it. But Lord, many don't know, and they're not going to know without a preacher and I pray that you would help us to proclaim that message to those we, uh, in our sphere of influence. Bless us in our own personal study as we seek to know you better and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And uh, oh, Father, I pray that you, that you would help us to not lose confidence, that you will finish the work in us, uh, and that Jesus will finish the work in us which he has started. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him and to cooperate with him and follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.